this week's Spring Member Drive edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast, we'll talk about the legislature's progress or lack thereof as we cruise into the last month of the session, former congressional candidate M.J. Hager's bid for John Cornyn's U.S. Senate seat, and a Texas mental health program meant to help prisoners avoid solitary confinement. But first, I want to take a moment and invite our loyal listeners to join our growing member community. We're trying to raise $60,000 before the month ends, and we need your support at texastribune.org give. If you still need convincing, here's one of our members on why he supports our work. Hi, this is Lee Nichols, and I'm the communications director for Text Protect, Texas chapter of Prevent Child Abuse America. I support the Texas Tribune as a state as bold and diverse as Texas needs journalism to match. Texans deserve to know how the decisions made by the people we elect have an impact on our daily lives. Plus, the TripCast is just a heck of a lot of fun. On most days. Thanks, Lee, and a special thanks to today's TribCast sponsors, the Texas Association of Community Colleges. Texas Community Colleges provide pathways for all Texans to advance to the next level. We are accessible, affordable, and relevant. Visit TACC.org. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Want healthcare insights? Listen to the Blue Promise podcast hosted by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at standingwithtexas.com. Do I have to talk you in your head? Do we have to make sense of it? Well, I know you're such a long time. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Thursday, April 25th with our spring member drive edition of the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. It's spring, so we're all got heads full of pollen and mold. <laughs> I know. If we sound terrible, Ross and I, he'll know why. Brought to you by the Austin Chamber of Commerce. Slow down your move. I'm brought to you by NyQuil. That's what we really need. <laughs> politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Hello. Why? <laughs> Ross and I are the ones with the head colds. Patrick sounds thrilled to be here. And criminal justice reporter Jolie McCulloch. Hello. Hello, Jolie. Uh, as always, folks, we'll take your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag TribCast. Okay, Ross, uh, I want to start with you and a look at the clock. Uh, lawmakers are staring down the barrel of the final month of the Texas legislative session. Uh, I'd like to do just a quick inventory of their stated priorities and where we are on those things. Why don't you start with, say, school finance? School finance finally got its first hearing this morning in the Senate Education Committee. Larry, Just uh, now? Yeah, this morning. Uh, Larry Taylor... This was the issue that at the beginning of the session, you know, they had that big kumbaya press conference over at the governor's mansion. Um, the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker all sat down and said, we're here for school finance and property taxes, the lieutenant governor said, and teacher pay raises. <laughs> and, um, you know, the House um, filed a bill. They finally passed it, I think, first or second of this month and sent it over to the Senate. The Senate filed a bill on the last, very last day you could file bills, March 8th, and it was full of blanks. I mean, it was literally full of blanks. I mean, like just marks, like lines like left line, for numbers blank, blank, to be blank, filled you know, in. We think that this ought to, ought to what? Can you uh, do that? Apparently you can do that. So anyway, so the House passed their bill. <laughs> Should have tried that in college. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know. Should have tried that when you filed your last story. So, so many wasted term papers, right? Um, so anyway, they finally picked it up today. And the things that they have left to do, it's, a, it's almost a 300-page bill, their substitute. The House passed a big bill. These things spend a lot of money. They're trying to attack, you know, all these things, recapture, standardized testing. There's a whole lot of education stuff in it. It's um, packed with things to fight about and things to argue about that are, you know, big policy fights. 
And it's just weird that they're doing an emergency issue as described by the governor in his state of the state speech this late. In the, the final Senate's four weeks. Here on April 25th, the Senate finally lays out its bill. So they're going to wow. do that. Uh, they, uh, Taylor said they're going to vote it out. Their plan is to vote it out of committee next week. It'll take a few days to filter over to the Senate. And then we're going to be very quickly into May. And May is a month, you know, a bunch of us have in our offices this calendar of the legislative deadlines in May. And it starts getting, you know, red letter days pretty quick. Um, second week of May, you, ha you can't hear House bills anymore in the House. Um, the third week of May, you can't hear Senate bills. And this bottleneck continues to the end of the month. Memorial Day, it all ends. So they're not leaving themselves much time on the biggest issue uh, that they're going to have to negotiate. What about the second and third biggest issues, property taxes and teacher pay? So number two and three are interesting. The The teacher pay thing passed the Senate, went over to the House. Their version is, the House. The Senate's version is a $5,000 pay raise for teachers and librarians in public schools. It wouldn't go through the formulas necessarily. And basically it takes about $4 billion to do that. Um, the attacks on it are sort of threefold. The first one is, why should we pay the worst teacher in the state, uh, give, give the worst teacher in the state the same pay raise we're giving to the best teacher in the state? Second version is $5,000 isn't the same amount of money in every part of the state. Right. You know, that doesn't go as far in, you know, Austin or Dallas or Houston as it might go in, you know, Brownwood or Amarillo or something like that. Um, and the third attack on it is that and, and this is where the House came in. Why shouldn't the school districts be able to decide this? Why, can't, why don't we use the teacher pay money to uh, give bonuses to good teachers, to reward teachers who will go into problem schools and try to help out there, uh, use it as incentive money, and give it to the school districts? So what the House did was put all of its money into the school finance system and said 25% of this has to be used for teacher pay. And how you use it is up to the school districts. Uh, so they still want to get that money in the classroom. I think theirs amounted to an average of about 1,800 a teacher. The Senate's was 5,000 a teacher. That's a big different chunk. The House bill knocks down recapture. The recapture is the thing that, you know, some school districts have more valuable property and can collect more taxes for a given tax rate. And then they get it scraped off and sent off to poorer school districts. Uh, some of these, Austin, for example, is up to you know over a billion dollars a year or up to a billion dollars every two years um, of locally collected tax money going to other districts. This is Robin Hood. It's Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a system um, that gets worse or gets more out of balance as the state's share of education spending goes down. So one way to make recapture, to get it, a handle on it, to get a handle on Robin Hood, is to put more state money in the system. And the House concentrated there you basically come down to, it's not exactly right, but you basically come down to, do you want to use all your money for teacher pay raises or do you want to use all your money for recapture and for school finance? So, I mean, are there big fights taking place over these issues or are we just moving really slow? I mean, you know, how do you strike the, the balance between chambers at a standoff versus right. like these are just complicated, thorny subjects that take a long time to sort out? Well, they do take a long time to sort out. And, uh, and the concern here is, you know, that some have, not everybody has it, obviously, but the concern here is that if you're going to take a lot of time to sort these things out, the last, the beginning of the last five weeks of the session is not the time to introduce right. your bill. We've been sitting around here for 15 weeks. Where, where have you been? Um, Where have they been? If they think it's been worked out, well, I think they've been trying to settle some differences. I think there are some senators, frankly, who would vote for the House plan. But I think that the lieutenant governor is so um, 
tied to this pay raise and got a 31 to oh, 31 to nothing vote out of the Senate on it that they're a little bit committed but so they're going to the the thing is can you get it to the bargaining table can you get it there in time can you finish this job before the end of the session so all right if you are banking on a special session or not what's your opinion i would say not if you if you don't fix this very quickly you get past the date where the school districts write their budgets. A lot of school districts write their budgets in May and June. And if you go into the summer for a special session, you basically say, we are not going to do this during the 2021 school year. We're going to wait for the 21-22 school oh, year. Oh, interesting. So um, they need to finish this. They need to, they need to kick something out and give the school districts some idea of what their next school year is going to look like or take their time and blow off fixing any of this for the next school year and just you know kick the can down the road. They have plenty of time. The question is whether they can do it. The, the last piece of this is the property tax stuff. And the House is holding a Senate bill on um, vote, requiring voter approval for tax rate increases over a certain amount. And they're waiting to see what the Senate does with education before they do that. So we're in that sort of typical period where the House is holding a hostage. The Senate's holding a hostage. Everybody move your hostage. Indeed. Uh, all right, well, let's stick with the Texas legislature for just a couple more minutes here. Uh, last week, we told you about this crazy, uh, unusual incident where the speaker was seated at a, at a GOP fundraiser back-to-back -back with the gun rights activist who had angered the speaker by showing up at his house. Uh, this week, the activist, Chris McNutt, had a press conference, released some body cam footage. Um, Ross or Patrick, can one of you tell us sort of what the latest is here, what McNutt is now alleging? I mean, you know, we're still kind of in the same place, honestly. You know, McNutt, uh, you know, is alleging that um, Bonin was the one at this fundraiser who was looking for a fight and who was the source of all tension and uh, confrontation at that fundraiser. Um, Bonin obviously has a different story. Round and round we go. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, both of them are kind of dug in on their on their accounts of of that night and, and more broadly their accounts of kind of what the source of all this tension has been going back to when uh, McNutt was, uh, you know, uh, in uh, Bonin's neighborhood and also the neighborhood of other lawmakers who he, he blames for an action on uh, constitutional carry. Um, so... Here we are again. McNutt's sort of saying, no big deal. I was just, you know, walking was just, to all... He was, he was just, just out happy. for a drive, but the drive <laughs> took him from Amarillo and Four Price's house to Lubbock and Dustin Burroughs' house over to Lake Jackson and... Yes, not exactly short. Dennis Bono's house. That's short like, drives. Got, you know, you got 700 miles on your, on your rental car there. <laughs> right. Uh, in 24 hours. And, you know, it's just... I mean, he was, he was trying to make a show of it, and he made a show of it, and it backfired on him. Yep. Uh, I mean, is this the kind of drama that... Bonin needs or wants to be dealing with in the final month of the legislative session? No. Yeah, I mean, as a blanch of that is... You want to say no? Is, yeah, is, right. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a total distraction from what, you know, I think they all want to be focusing on, uh, which are uh, two issues, property tax and school finance that are, uh, you know, decisively not gun rights issues um, in, in many ways. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big distraction and something that I don't think any, any lawmaker has much of an appetite um, to deal with at this point. Sounds good. All right, Ross, any other thoughts on that? You're looking like... <laughs> no, I just I just think it's it's a, one of those wacky things. It's like, you, you know, if you want to lobby legislators, uh, if you go knock on their doors under any auspices while they're in Austin, 
you know, go knock on their home door, that's not going to have a favorable outcome. Right. I mean, McNutt released this sort of, I guess he got the DPS body cam footage of the, you know, him being sort of, you know. Well, but why was the DPS there? You know, the DPS right. was there because he had already been to a couple of chairman's houses and they decided to double down and, and send somebody to Bonin's right. house. Right. And to me, just because he's not like being confrontational or adversarial with right. the DPS, you know, I mean, to me, the takeaway was he's still standing outside of Bonin's if, house. If he goes to my right. house, he's not going to run into the DPS. They were there for a reason. Exactly. All right. Well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors, the Texas Hospital Association. Texas hospitals support protecting patients from unexpected health care bills and ensuring consumer freedom. Learn more about Texas hospitals' common sense solution to surprise medical billing at THA.org slash surprise billing. And the Texas Cultural Trust. Educating the whole child requires equitable access to arts education. Learn more about arts access in your district at artcantexas.org. All right, Jolie, uh, you wrote a really important piece this week about solitary confinement in the Texas criminal justice system uh, and how a key program meant to help uh, mentally ill inmates stay out of it may not be working. Um, for starters, could you just help explain to our audience what solitary confinement is and how it works? Sure. Um, so solitary confinement in the Texas prison system at this point now is largely where you know, a, a prisoner is kept alone in their cell about 23 hours a day. Um, they come out for showers and recreation where they're also still alone. Like they only get solo recreation. Um, they don't have phone privileges. There's just, they lose, they, they lose most of their privileges and they're just locked in a cell for, by themselves. And they get it because why? So it used to be for punitive reasons at some point, but now they the system uses it for safety reasons, they'll say. So if a lot of the time, you know, there's in-prison violence. Like if you get in a fight in prison and they think you're a threat, they'll isolate, they'll put you away. Um, if you are associated with a gang, they will put you in solitary. There, there's different reasons. If you if they think you're like a high-risk escape flight, like a flight risk, mm -hmm. they'll put you in for solitary. And so why is, I mean, I guess, why is solitary confinement so controversial? And part B, does TDCJ, does the Texas Department of Criminal Justice agree that it's problematic? Um, TDCJ doesn't want, yeah, nobody wants solitary confinement, they would say. They've been trying to cut their numbers for, uh, for about a decade now. Um, the problem that, like, psychiatrists will say is that, uh, it's incredibly damaging to your psyche. You get, um, you know, you're locked in a, a room without any, like, sensory deprivation alone. Um, it can, it's just really harmful for your mental health if you have no mental health issues to begin with, if you have mental illness, um, it exacerbates your symptoms, paranoia, you know, just even like hallucinations. And it also um, has been linked to like an increase in suicide attempts. Um, so if your goal is to like stabilize these folks, putting them in solitary confinement can off it, often it make it much worse. Makes it worse, right. yeah. Do you, have, do you have any idea how many people are in it at a given time? In solitary? Yeah. Um, so in actual, like Texas calls it administrative segregation. There are a, about 4,500 people in it right now. Wow. Um, it got cut down in 2000. That, that's down? Yeah. Yes. Right. Wow. Um, in 2008, we were at, like, in, someone was in solitary for more than a day throughout the year. There, it was more than 11,000 people. Wow. Wow. And so how, so talk about how the numbers, what, what has TDCJ been implementing in order to bring those numbers down? So 
in 2017, they cut using solitary confinement for punitive reasons, but that was a pretty small number of um, the people who were kept in solitary. So they have created some diversion programs. Um, the biggest one is this mental health diversion program that we wrote about, which um, tries to take people who are have a mental health issue, they're on a caseload, like they've been diagnosed, um, and they're in an outpatient status, like they don't need to be taken to the psychiatric prison. Um, but they want them to kind of move back into the general population. But, you know, if someone's been in solitary for years, it can be incredibly just a harsh shift to just yeah. throw you into gen pop. Um, so they started this program where they're trying to, it, like a therapeutic program where they're supposed to get, you know, group therapy, individual therapy um, to bring them back to deal with like coping mechanisms, things like that, to be able to reintegrate them back into the general population. And so what do we know about the effectiveness of that program? Uh, what has your reporting on it exposed? Yeah, so, I mean, I followed this program for about a year and a half, and it's really hard to get information on how it works, what's going on inside um, from the department. They don't track um, success rates. Like, they don't regularly track like how many people have been moved to general population things like that they were able to get us data after we asked for it but it took like months of compiling and then when I asked for updated data it still took months like there's no process for tracking the success of this program mm. um what we do know is as of early last year like about a year, more than a year ago um about half of the people there's like about a thousand men who had gone through this program because it's only at two prisons right well it's only at two prisons at that time um, about half of them failed out of the program. Like they didn't complete it either because they didn't participate or they, you know, they had disciplinary issues. That um, put you back in, that put you back in solitary? Unclear where they God. go. Huh. Um, and then, you know, of the ones who did graduate, they have like a graduation ceremony, which was about, it was about half as well. Most of those went into the general population. So maybe a 50%, I mean, a 50% success rate, basically. For graduation. For graduation. And then, then, you know. Right. So about almost 500 men have been put back into general population. And how many of those have gone back into we solitary don't, after that? We don't know. Huh. So the department hasn't been able to give us updated information on how many people have failed out of the program as of now. Right. Because uh, they don't yeah. track it and they are having issues finding that out. So you heard from inmates who were in this program who raised a whole heck of a lot of concerns about it. Yeah, so we first found out about this program because um, a couple inmates wrote us about it. They wrote us letters saying, you know, like they were told this program was going to, you know, have a bunch of therapy. They were going to be able to get them back into general population. And then they got there and they really didn't see what they were promised. Um, individual therapies were cut for their several have told us they, they don't get individual therapy the group sessions are very short and largely are just someone like here's a handout and like read once this a handout. week for 20 minutes or something yeah. yeah um and they're locked in their cells as much as they were in solitary so basically oh. still 23 hours a day or you know most close. of the time is what they're yeah. saying because also a lot of this is TDCJ has a very big staffing problem, and that is a consistent problem. And if you don't have guards to take people in this type of environment to the shower, to group therapy, they have to be, like, handcuffed and taken everywhere they go. And if they don't have the guards, they can't take them. Wow. So has TDCJ acknowledged that this program is problematic or that they don't have the resources they need? Um, TDCJ has always acknowledged that they have staffing issues. Right. Um, they are, have expressed a lot of pride in this program, though. They think it's, you know, it's dealing with a difficult population. These are people who have been deemed 
they need to be separated largely because of violent reasons, but they do have mental illness. Um, so they're this is their attempt to try to address, like address that population. There's about 1,200 people right now who are still in solitary who are on a mental health like caseload. Um, they're trying to, this is them trying to do it, but they're not really collecting data on how it's working and they're, it's really hard to see what's actually going on inside. Um, and the inmates are telling us it's not what they're supposed promised. to be getting. And so uh, just last question on this, is is TDCJ asking for more money to expand this program? Yeah. To improve this program? So when TDCJ has talked about this this session in front of the legislature, like in front in committee hearings, they'll say, you know, this is program has found success because we find less instances of violence. Um, but they don't talk about like how successful it is in getting people back into Gen Pop. And they are trying to get about... 17 million more dollars to expand it to cover those other, you know, 1,200 some people who are still in solitary without, with the mental health needs. Um, so, so far, that has not been added into any. Yeah, I was going to say, are lawmakers, do lawmakers seem inclined to spend that money? It's, I mean, it's not in the current budget. <laughs> right. Yep. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jolie. Yeah. Um, Patrick, two 2020 headlines I want to hear from you on this week. Um, the first is our colleague Jay Root, who was uh, allegedly supposed to be in Costa Rica. I mean, <laughs> I guess he's still in Costa Rica. Instead, uh, had a piece land on Beto O'Rourke. Um, what was significant or different about that piece uh, versus what's been written? Well, I think what was significant was these Jay being able to track down these two police officers who were involved in responding to the incident and these two police officers saying that they stand by the report that we, we've all seen and know about before that, uh, you know, uh, cited an unidentified witness saying that O'Rourke uh, tried to flee the scene of that DUI crash. I think it was in it was the late 90s, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. over uh, two decades ago. Um, and, you know, this has been, this was an issue in the Senate race. Um, you know, there was in the Senate race, there was first this Houston Chronicle report that uh, came out and kind of moved the ball forward and saying that this issue, which had been previously brought up in the race, was actually a little more serious that, you know, the report said that he tried to flee O'Rourke later uh, denied that. He said that he went back and reconnected with the woman who was in the car with him at the time to, to try to reconstruct kind of, I guess, their memory of the incident. Um, and he, he's denied since then that he tried to flee. Um, you know, there, there, there continue to be, uh, you know, um, conflicting accounts of this. Mm -hmm. I do think it's interesting that the, you know, these cops were not exactly easy to track down. <laughs> well, they're, they're, in, they're in Anthony. It's a little cops town outside. Very, of, very generally, you're not uh, easy to track exactly. down. It's a, it's a little Former tiny cops, town, yeah. out, you know, on the outskirts of El Paso. Half of it's in New Mexico. Half of it's in Texas. It's, a, you know his own place. Yeah, I mean, I think he, so he went to pretty great lengths to find them, and then he had to convince them, as Jolie knows, like the, once you find them, the real <laughs> tricky part is like convincing, you know, anybody in law enforcement to speak to you, let alone, you know, on the record. So, but I think it was, you know, and they both, it was pretty straightforward, their statements were both basically like, you know, of course, we don't have really clear memory of these, this incident, but we stand by anything we would have put in the report, necessarily, right. but. Um, right, which you would, you would expect uh, police officers to do yeah right, right. be a little more yeah um, yeah I mean is this they said wait <laughs> yeah that would be that would be yeah. That out. yeah um is this I mean is this old news at this point or is this something that's going to continue to dog uh O'Rourke in his uh, presidential campaign it depends on what comes up I mean you know it's it it's it's probably better for him that this is out now than if it came up later in a race you mm -hmm. know George W Bush was the example of a DWI sort of not being on your 
on the radar until I think that was the weekend before the election. Um, it, was, wow. it was pretty tight. Wow. It was pretty tight, and it moved the numbers. Uh, that that George Bush had gotten pulled over at one point. Um, I think he called it a youthful indiscretion or something like <laughs> that. Um, and um, you know, if it comes out at a time when people are making decisions and it's the kind of material they haven't already kind of incorporated into what they know about somebody, it's a surprise. So you know, the good news for O'Rourke is that this is no longer going to be a surprise to anybody. But people are still getting to know him. I mean, outside of Texas, you know, it's hard to believe, you know, in Texas, but outside of Texas, people don't know who this guy is and they're just now learning about him. And one of the things they're learning about him is, wait a minute, what's this DWI thing? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the you know, right now his, the first task before him is to win a Democratic primary. And I, I think that on the list of issues that he's going to get hit on in a Democratic primary when things, when the going gets tough, this is pretty at the, uh, pretty far at the bottom of that list of issues that are a vulnerability from the Democratic primary. I, I think he helped, helped, not fully, but helped neutralize this issue a little bit during the Senate race uh, when that Houston Chronicle story came out um, and it really bubbled up in the Senate race. He started talking about this in a way that kind of um, that I thought was kind of politically savvy in acknowledging kind of his privilege in, in dealing with the criminal justice system back then mm -hmm. as a white man who was, you know, right. basically yeah. went through this, was able to spend a night in jail, basically get a slap on the wrist. I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying it. You may have to fact check me, but like, you know, basically just kind of breeze through the criminal justice system as a result of this. And then acknowledging that for too many people, particularly people of color, that that's not the case. experience yeah. that, you know, like a, a, a drunk driving crash like this could, you know, be lights out. Um, in so many ways in, in someone's life. Yeah, he um, shifted that pretty, I remember and at the, so, in one of the Yeah, debates, and so I think particularly within the context of a Democratic yeah. primary right now that's right. grappling with issues of race, privilege, diversity, I think he he, he fashioned a pretty him. acceptable yeah. response to it back in the Senate race. Yeah. Nice so. Yep. Uh, all right, uh, Patrick, we got some more 2020 news on Tuesday with a former congressional candidate jumping into the U.S. Senate mix. Uh, what do we need to know about what MJ Hager is up to? Yeah, she ran a, a blockbuster congressional campaign in 2018 in the 31st Congressional District, taking on uh, John Carter, uh, was able to raise millions and millions of dollars in a traditionally Republican district. A lot of that money was driven by a blockbuster, a similarly blockbuster uh ad that she had talking about her her military experience and just kind of her overall life story. Um, and so uh, this I think that that's, you know, how a lot of people statewide uh, and at least in the Austin area got to know her in 2018. Uh, but now she's she's running statewide and it's, it's a really Herculean task to break through statewide. Uh, you can ask Beto O'Rourke how much work, how much money, how much time and effort that requires. Yeah, when is a um, race? Yeah. You know, I mean, Beto O'Rourke, you know, he started March 31st, 2017. He didn't have a competitive primary. MJ may have a competitive primary on her hands. And it took every moment and every dollar for him to be able to get within three percentage points uh, of Ted Cruz. And so I think uh, Hagar really has her work cut out for her. So how did she announce? I mean, I know, as you mentioned, she went viral in her, you know, the ad for her failed congressional bid. I saw a similar, it looked like very similarly produced ad or uh, uh, announcement video that came out this time around. Yeah, she put out a, about, I think it was like three and a half minutes to four Long, minutes. Yeah. Uh, very Lots similar. Lots of motorcycle riding. <laughs> exactly. Very similar style. I think she's working with the, uh, Mark Putnam, the same ad maker. Um, you know, very similar style of those those ads are in congressional race. Um, kind of reestablishing herself and reminding people, I think, why she was such a star in the first place. Uh, was both that that ad, but also kind of the life story and the experiences that she conveyed through that ad. Um, and, you know, it was very, very similar style. Right. What does any of this mean for Joaquin Castro, who's also been widely considered somebody who could be, uh, he said he's pondering a run for this seat. 
He's, you know, I mean, um, you want to be first. And, um, but he said that, you know, this is going to be competitive. We passed the time when the Democrats just get one person to run. And, you know, he thinks as the state turns purple, this is what he says, as the state turns purple, you know, you're going to get Democratic primaries with more than one pre- person in them. Um, she's, you know, she's got a lot of attributes that people are going to be able to remember. And he's going to have to compete with that. You know, she's the, there's, if we, if we go by the, what she did in the congressional race, there's the tattoo ad. There's the ad about the motorcycle. There's the ad about the helicopter and uh, the door of a helicopter that's hanging in her dining room uh, that got shot off of her helicopter. There's the story of her uh, that's in her book. Is it Fight Like a Girl? Is that? Yeah. Or, uh, shoot like, shoot a like a Girl. Shoot Like a Girl. Um, you know, um, she's got a really good story. Castro has a story, but he's going to have to get it. You know, I mean, this is now we've got competing narratives. Which one's more interesting? Um, it's kind of a tough thing. He hasn't actually declared for the race. He's declared his interest in the race. He's made all the signs that you would make if you got into a race and hasn't yet got into it. So she gets first first blood. And has Cornyn said anything about either of them at this point? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. And this is all in the context of Cornyn, is, Cornyn and his campaign, are, I think, are very actively trying to show that they're not going to be caught flat-footed, right. um, that this is not going to be... Um, you know, a repeat of 2018 where Ted Cruz ignored um, Beto O'Rourke for the better part of a year uh, of that race. Um, and so, you know, Cornyn's campaign, even before Hager and Castro, you know, or even before Hager announced, and as Castro has said he's considering it, uh, they've been kind of uh, sharpening their attacks on these people, um, trying to kind of invite a competitive primary by stoking tensions uh, between, you know, who the alleged preferences of, of Washington, D.C. are in the primary versus the Democrats in Texas. Uh, I mean, they've been working overtime to kick up as much dirt on this um, as they can, uh, you know, kind of a bl- blinding level of dust, political dust first, up in first, the air. First race with Patton Oswalt. Right. Right. Exactly, yeah, yeah and exactly. Patton Oswalt is now a, you know, a central figure in all of this. Um, and so, but I, I think it's, you know, I think it's more seriously, I think it's important, I think, for them to show that to other Republicans in the state, uh, because there's no doubt that there's going to be a, a, you know, democratic, uh, you know, onslaught on, on, you know, uh, in Texas in 2020 and corn is going to be toward the top of the ticket. And I think, uh, they need to show very early on that they're taking this very, very seriously. All right. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to the Texas Association of Community Colleges, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, the Texas Hospital Association and the Texas Cultural Trust, our sponsors this week. An extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. And thanks to you, our loyal members, for helping us reach our goal this spring member drive. A reminder that we can't produce this Tribcast or any of the other great work we provide for Texas without your help. Now is your chance. TexasTribune.org slash give. On behalf of Ross, Jolie, Patrick, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening.